0: Most organisations will have a set of values and principles, but these are much more than a set of words um, on paper, and actually they translate into behaviours, and then I talk through all the different ways in which that happens.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Helping Organisations Thrive podcast. This is your host, Julian Roberts. This podcast is to provide leaders with insights, discussions, and robust strategies to help their companies thrive. We'll be interviewing business leaders, owners, experts, and thought leaders in the field of business resilience. Do enjoy the episode.
2: Welcome to helping organizations thrive. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of Tracy Aust on the show. Uh, good afternoon to you. T- good afternoon to you, Tracy.
0: Afternoon, Julian.
2: Yeah, good to see you. i uh, glad to have you on. You are the principal at West Thames College. Uh, you appointed that in, in 2016. And your job, it um, sounds like a small thing, but actually it's not a huge thing, is to oversee the management of the college and to ensure all your students are successful. And you've got a real passion about that, I know. And today we will be exploring uh, decision making rooted in principles and values uh, in leadership. But before we go there, Tracy, uh, what, what do you love about what you do?
0: I think the thing I love most is working with the staff and the students that we have here at the college and actually feeling like collectively we're able to make a difference. And, you know, for some of the young people that we work with, it can transform their lives. We give them opportunities and chances that they just haven't seen to date. And knowing that we care makes such a massive difference. And I remember when I first came to the college, not even in the role as principal, but when I first came to the college, people said to me, once you get him, you'll stay. And at the time I was like, oh, don't be ridiculous. I'll do my three years and I'll be off, and move on to the next thing. And actually over 20 years later, here I am.
2: Wow, 20 years, that's a long time. And I'm, I'm sure you've seen uh, many changes in that time as well and challenges. Uh, and also the challenges we had in the last few years. Uh, where's that passion come from with this whole thing about this desire to you know, help students be successful and, and just what you've just said there, where, where's that come from?
0: I think I always considered um, teaching. And, um, and I think that probably stems back from my own school experience of having a couple of significant teachers, both at primary level and at secondary level, who actually had a real impact on me. And I just thought, yeah, yeah, you know, that's something I can see where that adds value. That's something I'm interested in. And when I first went to university, um, I was studying to be a primary school teacher and very rapidly realized that um, that really wasn't for me, children of that age. So I switched my degree to economics and politics and absolutely loved it. And at the end of that process, I then did a PGCE for secondary schools. Well, secondary school age, and you know, as soon as I as soon as I was on teaching practice, obviously you have the nerves. You've got someone in there observing you, but honestly, it was the first time someone came in, and it just felt so right. I just, it was kind of almost a relief just to think, wow, I found the thing that I really want to do, and honestly, I I haven't looked back. I think there was a period when I was at school, and I must have been about fifteen where I thought that I might like to be an accountant because I really like working with numbers and finance. I did a little stint on work experience and suddenly realised absolutely not for me. Um, However, I did manage to take some of that and incorporate it into my early career, because when I first came to West Thames, one of the things I was doing is I was teaching A-level economics, A-level accounts, A-level business so I've still been able to use those, the kind of finance piece in my role, but in various guises over the years.
2: And I'm sure in your role as principal, you're looking at a lot of numbers on, on a weekly basis to make sure that you're on, you're on track. Um, we're talking about decision making uh, today. And I'd like to get uh, an understanding because you're making decisions all the time um, and you know, and the significant decisions that impacts impact you, impact your team, impact the college, the students. And I just want to understand your, you talk about the sort of values and principles behind sort of uh, decision-making. What are your values and principle? What, 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 before we get into the actual de- decision-making process, what what was behind all that for you? What are you rooted in?
0: So for me, it's about um, integrity. It's about honesty. It's about respect being kind of open with people and and valuing other people's opinions Um, and I think where as a college when we were working on our values and principles seeing those things come through that resonated with me as a person actually just felt very right and I think as, as part of that It's also about striving for excellence in everything you do and helping others, particularly our students, to know that actually you can smash those targets, targets that, you know, at school you may have been told it's impossible to reach. So there are kind of a core set of values that I guess I hold really dear to myself as a person, but being able to then reflect that in the job that I do as well um, is really important Because it just, it means that when it comes to decision making, for example, you know, it has to be authentic. I have to walk away with a clear conscience that actually, you know, I've done the right thing. We've acted in the right way. And, you know, we've respected people in that, whether it's our students, whether it's our staff.
2: Mm. And. You know, a lot of organisations, you know, put their values out, and I know your values of an organisation is integrity, excellence, equality, and respect, which is obviously similar to your your own personal ones. Um, I don't know whether you might have had a hand in that, but certainly there's a there's a, there's, a, there's an alignment uh, there, and in some ways, you know, and I do a lot of work with organisations to help them get clarity on those values or make them what what's um, implicit, explicit. Um, and it, it's a great process to do. Um, and almost I always say to these organisations, these leaders, that, that's almost the, the easy bit is getting to the point of knowing your values. Uh, the hard bit is, is living them and making them very obvious to those around you because it's easy to put them on a wall. It's easy to put them on a website. Um, so I, I'd, I'd love to understand just taking you can just pick whatever value you've got from your organisation how do you make sure that that is is lived within the organisation from your perspective but also from your staff
0: yeah so one of the things that um, we do at the beginning of the year we have a corporate induction with all new staff and my intro to that corporate induction is always about the values and principles because they are so embedded in everything we do. I think it's really important from the outset that there is a clear understanding of what you're buying into if you come to be part of the organisation. And we also share them with students. And one of the things that I always say is, you know, most organisations will have a set of values and principles, but these are much more than a set of words um, on paper. And actually they translate into behaviours. And then I talk through all the different ways in which that happens. So, to give you an example, when we first set our values and principles, and it was a number of years ago now, and we kind of, you know, we review them on an annual basis. Um, but it was a complete whole college approach. We had an external organization working with us who understood the college, um, and we had staff, students, everyone was involved in the process. And one of the things we really wanted to do was we wanted to make sure that they weren't just a set of words, but actually that they did translate into how we all operate and behave. And also something that we are all held accountable to and for. So we produced our principles and those principles come with a set of, well, what does that mean? What does that look like in practice? So if we're saying, you know, one of our principles is around being open and informative, well, how does that translate into a behaviour? So we we shared examples of those. And then what we do is our values and principles are everywhere, starting from, you know, the application process, the member of staff wants to join us, it's there in their JD Um, in our annual appraisal program it has been designed to incorporate our values and principles so every member of staff will be asked you know how they think they're doing how does that translate to values and principles how is that reflected in what you do and you know on a a kind of a day-to-day basis so it's just i mean it's so well embedded within the organisation, but we do ensure that we continue to go back to them to make sure that actually they're still as valid today as they were when we first developed them. And it's that constant check back, and we will say, you know, I I will say to staff as part of the new corporate induction, you know, if you think these aren't being adhered to, you know, you absolutely – have a right and staff do challenge us and when we're making decisions you know Mm. if there is you know if something's happened um you know we will often say well actually how is that being carried out have we have we acted in accordance with our values and principles and if it's the case you know that we haven't then we absolutely will hold our hands up we'll do something about it but staff staff will question us will challenge us and that's what we expect them to do um, and I think the other thing that's really important as part of that is actually role modeling them. Mm. You know, we absolutely have a responsibility. It's no good saying I live and breathe it if actually no one sees the evidence of that. I absolutely do. And I and I talk, we talk about them a lot and we make reference to them a lot. And they, as I say, they're kind of embedded in our processes and our mm. systems but also in the conversations that we are having with people, with staff and with students. And what's always always, um, quite reassuring is when you have externals coming in to visit us, they often talk about the feel of the place. And sometimes that's something that's kind of intangible. But actually, when you get that feedback, it's always, yeah, uh, we, we, we know what you mean. We work really hard at that. That's about the culture we've created. And it's really important that... We have created a culture that allows those values and principles to be felt.
2: Yeah, and I think by almost putting down on paper what those values look like in behaviours and how people can observe it really makes it a lot more tangible and uh, livable, I guess. That's important because obviously people see the word integrity, people know what it means, but how does that play out is really important. I like the idea that you know, you you embed it in the sort of professional development, pro- you know, in terms of your review each year. It's all embedded in values, but also, as you said, you know, which I think often organisations forget about. Role modelling is one of the most powerful tools to do anything in your organisations because if you're saying one thing and doing another, people don't might not always say it, but they'll just feel this incongruence with you, thinking it doesn't align. Something's not quite right here. So, uh, it's the most powerful way to to take people on a journey of Uh, transforming cultures is by the role modeling and observing that so taking those those sort of values you've got and it's obviously clearly embedded and clearly you know and i'm sure you are always continually checking and making sure that's all as as it should be how does that work in a a context of decision making i mean have you got any examples where you use those or i I don't know that could be helpful to sort of hear how your process of decision making works in this context
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll give you, I guess, a couple of different examples, one that's probably at the organisational level, and another one in terms of how it works at a kind of, in a group level as a senior leadership team. And so certainly from an organisational point of view, unfortunately, it becomes an annual occurrence in the sector that you're looking at budgets and you're looking at, you know, what's coming in, what changes do you need to make, how do you adapt? And we are a very flexible and agile sector. And so, you know, more often than not, we will have a budget setting paper that we produce each year. We will always try and avoid in that paper there being any redundancies. But, you know, quite often there will be reorganisation, restructures. And one of the things it's we, we always make sure that we do up front is make it very clear that completely aligns with our values and principles, why we are doing this, what the process is how we engage with staff through the process, what the feedback is. And also, I think it's really important when you come to the end of a process like that to be really open and share the feedback you've received, share what changes you've made as a result of that. And I think it's a really helpful framework because people see that actually whatever those tough decisions are that may need to be made, that you continue to act in a way that absolutely aligns with what we are trying to do as an organisation. It aligns to our values and principles. So I think at at an organisational level, that that, that would be an example. And then I think the second thing, kind of in decision making, you know, we're all very clear that in my case, no woman is an island. And actually, that Working together collectively is really important. And to be honest, most decisions that are made will involve more than just one person. And so we've created a structure um, that allows that to happen. So we've got a relatively small executive team. There are four of us. Um, And one of the things that we created to support our decision-making process is we created a set of groups, which we call our ET Plus Groups. And we have those ET plus groups that kind of cover key functions of the the business, so funding and finance, student student voice. And in those groups, as well as members of the um, executive team being present, it actually incorporates members from across the organization that have a stake in the decisions that are made by that group. Um, and those groups have become really powerful in terms of decision making because, one, people know that they have a voice. People know what the mechanism is for their voice being heard. And actually with those groups in the same way as others, we will be very clear up front about what the purpose of the groups are and how those groups are going to operate again aligned to our you know our values and principles so we will share information that comes out of those groups and again that ties back to i guess to our approach you know the open and informative being equal and inclusive so i think in in everything we do we try to ensure that actually we are embedding the values and principles and, and sometimes we really have to think about it because it's just almost become second nature. It's what you do. It's how you work. That sometimes you have to take a step back and think about, oh, gosh, yeah, that is an example of A, B and C because it's so, it's so embedded.
2: Yeah, and I think having those sort of mini groups that allows that sort of hopefully different type of thinking and input into the exec team, is a a way of keeping that almost that balanced view on the organization how do you which is often sometimes the case with groups um guard against that whole sense of group think or committee mindset where you i don't know perhaps the the senior person in that group makes says something and then everybody just follows because they think they've made the right decision rather than challenging how, how do you guard against that because it is it's difficult because I've been in groups where I might be the senior person I've said something and everybody's then or so just agreed with me and and you're thinking that's not really creating a group decision making here how do you guard against that
0: I think one of the things that we do is think very carefully about the membership of the group because you know that you want a selection of people on that group, and if you, you know, if you kind of go back to business theory about take something like Belbin's roles, and you know you have the different people on your group, and certainly as an executive team, we we absolutely recognise that you need that mix and balance. And so for each of us in the team, we will have our own strengths and areas for improvement. Um, But actually knowing that that challenge is really as important as the support. So we look very closely at the membership and also it's people from across the organisations in at various levels and also they involve our students. So where it's relevant, there will be student reps on those groups too. Um, And I think all of us, anyone who's leading one of those executive team groups understands the value and the importance and actually have seen where they've worked well. And working well doesn't mean everyone is in agreement. Working well means there is a healthy discussion and challenge Mm. and, you know, different ways of thinking that enrich, you know, the decisions that are made. And I think for us as an organisation, we are, hugely diverse, which reflects our student body. And again, that diversity and that kind of celebration of differences and listening to others' opinions is really important. And I think mm. that's what we put into the structure of the groups that we've formed. And each year, the membership of those groups is renewed.
2: That's good. I like that. And that's it's important to keep that diversity and that flow of, of, of different like his opinions and the, and like the idea that you can have healthy debates. Um, mm-hmm. I remember I talked to one CEO. Um, he what he would do, he wouldn't make a decision, he wouldn't say, he wouldn't share his thoughts until everybody else has shared their thoughts because yeah. he knew he had a quite persuasive nature and quite an influence. And so, he would almost hold back on what he thought about something and let everybody, and then he would use that as an opportunity to then either potentially change his mind. And before he shared his thoughts, which created that thing, um, what we're touching on here, I guess, which is where people can can challenge, which is always is healthy, as you say, in, in a respectful way, is like psychological safety, isn't it, almost creating teams environments where people feel they can say, "Oh, Tracy, I don't agree with that," in an in an obviously in a respectful way. How have you created that? Because it sounds like you have created that—that that sort of sense of people are able to challenge. And really push the boundaries, even with those in authority.
0: I think it's I think it's about the culture of being very open, and even down to some very simple things where I have an open door policy, and genuinely, my open door policy means that anyone can come in. The doors open, come in, ask me what you've got to ask me. Um, it can be students, it can be staff. Um, so I think I think people genuinely see that, and I think one of one of the things or one of the ways in which we've created it is about being very accessible and visible. And, you know, sometimes I will go to other organizations um, and the CEO, you know, you can't find them. You know, their staff don't, don't know them. Um, and, you know, we've had lots of positive feedback um, when people have joined us to say, I can't believe we can just come and walk in your office and, and ask you something. And, and I'm, yeah, yeah, of course, that, that is genuinely how we are. And that doesn't just happen overnight. That is about establishing that, you know, that culture of this is how it works. But I think you have to do it through a number of different ways, through the actions that you demonstrate. And I think one of the things that's, for me, that's the most powerful is when we have our students and our students will come and, you know, give feedback or we're working with them on a particular project. And actually, they see the impact of their contributions on decisions that have been made. And, you know, I always say when I meet with the new students at the start of the year, the student voice for me is one of the the most, A, rewarding, but be the most important part of what I do. Because, you know, as an organisation and as a group of staff, we may be creating an environment which we think, you know, all singing and dancing and does everything it needs to be Mm. but actually what do the students think and you know one of the things I would I always say to the students at the beginning is look if you've got ideas about how things should work share them and sometimes you might have a wish list but actually if you come to us with that wish list if there are things we can't do we'll say we can't do them we'll let you know why and we look at alternatives so I do think that culture of being kind of open and honest with things, but being open to collaboration, being creative. And I think we've managed to do that both inside the organisation. But I think one of the things for me as a leader that I'm, I guess, um, yeah, quite pleased with is being able to take some of that and to extend it beyond the organisation and my role as CEO, working with external partners, working across the sub-region, and that's been, yeah, that's been, you know, a, a real success. And had someone said to me when I first became CEO, that's what I was going to be doing, I would have probably said, it's not really where I want to go.
2: <laughs> and it goes back to role modelling again, isn't it? You've got this way of being open, accessible, you know, we talk about open door, but it, it's it's a mindset. It's a, you're, you probably walk around the cottage a lot more, you're just more open to have conversations, you'll stop with, it's, And and it's it's role modeling, and people, and then that pervades a culture and starts to see these values again. And this person's making a difference and an impact. Um, And I'm sure you you obviously made hundreds and thousands of of, of decisions as your time um, uh, in your role. Talk me through. It might be an example where you you made a I'd say a bad decision. You made a decision, and and it turned out. About decision how did you navigate that difficult situation because we all make decisions based on what we know and then something happens and it turns out it wasn't a great decision and just wonder how you take your team through those situations when things don't go quite as as you expect
0: yeah I think one of the things that I will always do and I think my team do do as well is reflect on decisions that have been made good and bad because actually there was always some learning to come out of it and more often than not the best learning comes from where you've made the wrong decision or made mistakes or could have done things differently and I think that whole um, reflective piece is really important and so you know sometimes it might not be a major decision but actually just something that we have you know a decision that we've made that on reflection we've said actually you know We should, you know, that probably wasn't the right call, or the timing of that decision wasn't right. And the way we, the the way we would unpick that would be initially through our ET group, so um, with the team, um, and look at actually what could we have done differently. Was there anything about that that, um, you know, we should have considered in in a different way? And if we're in that situation again, how would we stop ourselves? from making the same decision so I think that reflective practice piece is really important and I think it's important both at an individual level and that's definitely something um, that I will do and even when perhaps a decision is, is not necessarily the wrong decision but actually for me it always goes back to the the piece around excellence, if I'm going to do something, I want to give it 100%. I want to do the best job I can do. And I will often come away from something thinking, well, yeah, that was 95% if that was good, but that 5%, what else could I have done? What yeah. could I do differently next time? Um, and I think, you know, that's something that I will do as a person, my team will do. And one of the, one of the things that we've done as an organization is we've created a program for leaders and managers and it's called our creative excellence program and the creative excellence program was has been designed around our values and principles so everyone you know in the organization that goes into a management position it's one of the first things that they do so for me it goes back to that values and principles piece again and it's part of it's part of what we do and just last year one of the things that we we've been looking at is we look at leaders and we look at managers and i'm really keen that leaders aren't just managers you know we have leaders across the organisation so how do we develop our leaders across the organisation mm. Perhaps that individual teacher who is the specialist and the subject who's actually doing something creative. How do you harness that mm. and develop that? So I think, I think it is about that reflection. It is about learning from what you have done. But also one of the things that I'm absolutely adamant is that we don't ever use a blame culture. It's mm. never about that. It's always about okay, what could we have done differently? And mm. even if, if sometimes members of my team will come to me and say, "I've done this. I'm not sure I've made the, the right call." We will have that discussion about. So, what could you have done differently in that situation? Mm. What might have what might have brought a better outcome?
2: Yeah, that um, so much in that. That's great, and I think that learning culture learning mindset is such a, a hallmark of a, a resilient organization because uh, you know despite we all try our best various teams you work on making decisions and and everything else and you're value driven we will make mistakes we'll make the wrong, the wrong call based on what we know and but the key thing is that how do we learn how we reflect and it's great that you've got this process of reflecting and learning and adapting and and, and modifying not only as an organization but yourself um it's been great speaking to you, um, Tracy, and, I, I, and clearly your your values are embedded in all what you've been talking about, in what you're saying, how you go about it. Uh, but there's some real process in that as well that tries to get the best out of uh, the people in your organisation. Um, that's brilliant. Um, if people want to connect with you, get in touch with you, what's the best way of doing that?
0: At LinkedIn, probably.
2: Okay, brilliant. Well, I'll, I'll put all the link, links in the, in the show notes. That's great. Uh, well, really, again, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate that.
0: No, thank you so much. And you're right. It was enjoyable.
1: <laughs> thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. If you do like this episode, then please do rate, review and share with your friends and colleagues. As a coaching practice, we coach high performing leaders and teams with extreme ambitions will help you to go beyond what you believe is possible. If this sounds like you, then let's have a conversation with me. Contact me at JulianRobertsConsulting.com.